0: On the days that I speak, I come early so that they can do a sound check. And today w- I was talking with the worship team and I was telling them that my wife and I had been to another church and I was speaking there and the worship leader invited us to exercise our legs, to stretch ourselves and all this when we stood up in the transition. And I thought that, that's, they invite us to worship. You know, th- There's nothing about stretching or getting your breath or taking a breath. It's about worshiping. And they do such a splendid job of inviting us into the presence of God, so that now we're just gonna pray and close the service. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Started in August, at the end of August into the beginning of September, my wife began to receive love letters. Those love letters came a little bit more fast and furious into October and November. They came to an, kind of an abrupt halt in December, and then they started up again in January. They came about two or three, four or five a week. They continued all the way up until COVID-19 hit, and of course then they stopped abruptly. Now some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, oh, well, perhaps you should have done something about that. Others of you are thinking, well, how lucky for her, she found somebody else. <laughs> But if I create a context for you, I think you'll understand the love letters a little differently. You see, my wife teaches kindergarten, and those kindergartners grow to love her, and they express it by writing these notes, repeatedly and illegibly often, but they send them in droves. So when I create that context, you all go, oh. You see, the context helps us to understand what's going on. And I think the Apostle Paul does a great job in creating a context for us, so that we are able to understand exactly what it was like for the Philippians to hear Paul's instruction of Philippians 4.8, and how to confidently interact with that instruction to bring about change in their lives. So this morning what I would like to do is I would like to create a context for Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 and there are three parts to that context. The first part of the context is Paul's audience. Paul's audience. Uh, The church of Philippi was founded and you can read about it in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 16. Beginning at verse 11, the Apostle Paul makes his way into Philippi and when he gets there he first encounters a woman named Lydia, who was a seller of purple. Uh, that was a very expensive uh, thing for her to be a part of. So she was a, a very wealthy businesswoman. And it says in Acts chapter 11, it says that, "And God opened her heart and she believed." And she became one of the first members of Paul's church in Philippi. And as we continue with the story, Paul is followed around by a woman, slave girl, she's called, with a spirit of divination. She would prophesy and say things about people. And she was following Paul and Silas around, and she was saying, uh, this is a man of God. He is speaking the truth of God. And it says in the text, it says this, it says, and Paul got annoyed, (laughs) and he turned, and he cast that spirit out of her. And those who were her handlers became very upset, because what she would do is she would go around and she would prophesy on the behalf of others, and now she couldn't do that, and so they weren't making any money. So they accused Paul and Silas of being Jews who did not worship in the Roman way, and what that meant was they did not worship the emperor. And so Paul and Silas were thrown into jail. And this is probably a story that's familiar to you, the stocks and bonds, right? And what did Paul and Silas do when they were all chained up? They sang great hymns and praises. And then there was this incredible earthquake that God sent, and it broke the chains. And the jailer comes rushing back to check and see if anyone has left. Because remember, if someone escapes, then the jailer has to take their sentence. And Paul says, No, relax. Nobody's gone. Everybody's still here. And the jailer says, What must I do to be saved, to be like you? And Paul says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Another member of the Philippian church. Paul gives us even more details, if you take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1, about the audience to whom he's writing. Not just Lydia, not just the jailer and his family, or Lydia and her family, but also these believers that Paul talks about. If you look at beginning at verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, That's the audience to whom he's writing. He's saying, I remember you with thankful joy. I remember you because you are partners in the gospel. I remember you because you are complete in Christ. I remember you because you are partakers of grace, not only in my imprisonment, but the the defense of the gospel. I remember you, and when I think of you, it is with affection. Paul is writing to these believers in Philippi. Now, the Philippians had the same feelings towards Paul. Remember, Paul was in prison, and the Philippians felt so strongly towards Paul that they sent Epaphroditus to minister to him. And not only that, but Paul says, you know, you supplied my needs while I've been away from you. These people loved Paul. Paul loved them. And so the audience are people just like you and just like me. Paul is addressing believers who have come to the conclusion that they are sinners who need to be saved, they need the, the redemption that's provided through Jesus Christ on the cross. They are people just like you and I. So when we enter into this context, when we enter into this passage of Philippians 4:8, don't think that Paul has reserved this for only the spiritual elite, or only those that have arrived at something somewhere that, that is out of our realm of possibility. Instead, come to an understanding that the context, the audience, is you. The audience is me. Those of us that have trusted and experienced the grace of God, we are the audience that Paul is addressing. So, the first part of the context that helps explain and helps us to understand what we are to do is Paul's audience, you and me. Please notice the second part of the context. The second part of the context is positive, uh, a positive admonition. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. A positive admonition. In verse 8, Paul writes this. Oops, sorry, I'm in chapter 1. In chapter 4, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says this, Finally, brethren, and when he says finally, it's like this is my last piece of advice to you on this thinking idea here. In verse eight he says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Uh, Positive admonition, think on these things. Paul is saying to them, use your mind. He is admonishing his audience. He is admonishing them to use their minds. Now, the word think is written in the imperative, which is a command. It's an admonishment. Paul is not making a suggestion here. He is saying this is something you need to do. And he puts it into the present tense so that it's not just think one time. It's the idea of keep on thinking. Keep on using your mind. Using your mind is really nothing new for the believer. We can go all the way back to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, Isaiah writes this: He says, Come now, let us reason together. Use your mind. Think about these things. Make yourself focus, consider. Bring your your, your mind into contact with these ideas that are coming up next. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But this pod- positive admonition: use your mind, is nothing new. Remember, David. Uh, He is the one that records all of the psalms. And one of the psalms is written by David's psalmist or one of the song leaders in the worship. His name was Asaph. And in Psalm 73, Asaph was all worked up and all angry because those who had turned their backs on God, those who were the wicked, they were thriving. They were doing great. And Asaph became so angry and so upset because he was like, I'm doing everything right I'm serving you God, I'm doing everything you ask me to do, but yet they're flourishing and I'm not. And in Psalm chapter 73 verse 16 and 17 it says this, it says, Asaph says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So I'm thinking about this and it's wearing me out, but then, in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He said, I thought about this and it didn't seem right and then I really thought about what God is doing and I realized that the wicked will end with destruction but I will receive the gift of eternal life. Thinking, something we are admonished to do by the Apostle Paul. Paul is all about practical consideration that leads to action. What you think determines how you act. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you have done something, and someone says to you after you've done it, What were you thinking? Has that ever happened to you? It happened early in our marriage when I mixed colors with whites. What were you thinking? Well, obviously, I wasn't, right? Or have you ever asked that question? What were you thinking? You see, we, we place a value on that. And so that's what Paul does. Paul places a value on that. It is important for us to think. And please be careful here. We sometimes allow ourselves to think in terms of leaps of faith when we're Christians. You know, we don't need reason. Uh, instead, we just leap by faith. N- no. Instead, we step by faith because of what we know and think about God. Because of what we know and think about God, we are able to step in faith, not leap. Uh, The leaping is left to someone's imagination, not God's. There is nothing aimless about being a believer. Uh, There is nothing left to you to do except think. Use your mind. Paul has written it in Philippians 4.8. That believers need to think about what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable. Think on those things. Uh, This is a poem that you have heard uh, used before. It says this Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Your destiny begins with a thought, with thinking. Now, let's pause for just a moment. And when you look at this passage and see this, the Apostle Paul is talking about ideals. He has really raised the level here. When he's talking about true, honest, lovely, all those things, that's really a high standard to be met. And sometimes when we we think of that standard, sometimes that is just beyond us. It is too much for us to bear. But please look at the passage, verses one through seven in Philippians chapter four. Notice what Paul says. In verse 1, 2, and 4, he says, in the Lord. In verse 5, he says, the Lord is at hand. In verse 6, he says, known to God. Verse 7, he says, the peace of God. He says, in Christ. Do you notice that he does not leave us to ourselves to do this? We are not accomplishing thinking clearly and cleverly and what God and how God wants us to. We aren't left to ourselves. He reminds us that Christ is with us, that God is with us, that he is the enabler. And the most marvelous and wonderful way that God is with us is in his word. You see, Jeff has made it abundantly clear that these behaviors are rooted in and what the Word of God says. So don't feel like you have been left to yourselves to fend for yourself and to try to come up with something. Instead, realize that God is with you and near you as you approach these things to do. So Paul creates this context for us. First of all, we see the audience, you and me. Then he gives us this positive admonition, which is to think, use your mind. And then the third part of this context that helps you know change is possible is the action he calls you to. Notice the action in verse eight. He says, whatever is lovely, whatever is lovely. Now we have to be careful here because sometimes when we hear words, we think in terms of what we know that word to represent instead of trying to understand it again in the context in which it was written. So this is not whatever is lovely. It's not like the COVID-19 type of statements. I don't know if this happened to you when COVID-19 broke, but one of the things I had to wade through as a teacher is emails and little videos that were sent to me that told me, you got this. You can do this. You got this. What, the virus? Do I have the virus? I mean, what do I got? You can do this. You can do, I can cope. I can cope with students taking my Zoom call and saying, man, Mr. Baker, you look older on Zoom than you did in the classroom. I I can cope with that? What does that mean? Now, the people that sent those were well-meaning. But what does that even mean? That's not what Paul's saying. Whatever is lovely, you know, you can do this. Hang in there kind of a thing. Neither is he wrapping it in the physical. Oftentimes when we hear, hear the word lovely, we think in terms of, well, that's a lovely dress. That was a lovely dessert that you served. Don't think of the physical things. Remember, Jesus took care of the physical things when he talked to us in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about don't worry about what you eat, don't worry about what you drink, don't worry about what you wear, don't worry about those things. I've got that. Instead, what does he say? Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness will come to you. So he's not talking about some kind of... uh, Physical thing. Careful too, this is not a feeling. We oftentimes hear the word love or lovely and we think, oh, feelings. That's what we got to do. We got to generate some feelings. Love is not about feelings. Love is all about commitment. Love is all about deciding and committing. It's a decision, it's a choice. I'm committing myself to you. When my wife and I got married, we made a vow to each other, we were committed. Again, sometimes we think it's all about compatibility. Find someone that is just like me. I'm with me every day, I don't want someone like me. (laughs) I want someone that's committed to me. I remember early on when we were married, I got the flu. And I got it pretty badly. And I remember my wife coming in after just being married a couple of weeks with a damp washcloth and putting it on my head and holding my head while I vomited. Now, if that had anything to do with feelings, she would have taken a hike, right? (laughs) Nobody wants to see that. So when you see that, it's not about feelings, it's about commitment, and we'll get to that more in just a moment. But love is something you decide. So then, whatever is lovely, what does Paul mean when he says that? Well, this is a word that Paul only uses here, and no one else uses it anywhere else in the New Testament. It is a word that is made up of two words. The word pros, and the word phileo. The word pros means toward, and the word phileo, you've heard of that, right? Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, right? So phileo is love. Brotherly love is oftentimes how we refer to it. So Paul is saying, go towards love. Go towards what is lovely. Go towards that thing, the love of family, brothers and sisters, go towards that. He is saying, go towards brotherly love. And you're saying, what does that mean? (laughs) What do we mean by go towards brotherly love? Well, think about how to love brothers and sisters in your family. How do you love them? It is an active thing. It is a movement that you make going towards it. The Apostle Paul, I think, does a great job of showing us exactly how to view our brothers and sisters. If you take your Bibles and turn back to Philippians chapter one, and when we begin to see how our brothers and sisters, what they are, then love becomes much more easily done. Please notice what Paul says in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 1. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, he could have said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, a servant. But instead, he brought, those, he brought himself and Timothy together. Not because they're co-authors. They're not co-authors of this passage, which you'll, you'll know as you go through the, the rest of the text. But instead he's saying, we're working together. We are servants. Now it's the word doulos, not diakonos. The word diaconos is our word for deacon. You know, the servant. This is the word doulos, which is slave. And what Paul is trying to express to them is, we are servants of Christ Jesus. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. So we are now under the complete control of Jesus Christ. We are no longer concerned about ourselves. We're concerned about what Christ is concerned about. So when Paul sees brothers and sisters, he sees us as slaves. We're all together serving, and we have set aside our concerns for the current concerns of Christ Jesus. Now think about how that changes how you love someone. We're together in this. We're serving together we're united in a cause with Christ, so we are different in our thinking. Notice the second thing that Paul says. He says, "...to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons." So not only are we slaves, but we are also saints. So when you look at your brothers and sisters, you look at them and you see them as saints. You say, Brother, you don't know, my friends. They're, <laughs> they're not saints. I'm not talking about saints, you know, the, the icon or the, uh, the statue. I'm talking about the saint in Christ Jesus. The word literally means set apart one. When you come to a saving understanding of Jesus Christ, you are set apart to God and for his use, for his purposes. And we are all saints. Being a saint isn't a special club. It's not like, well, some people are saints and other people are just Christians. Uh, Some people are saints and other people are just followers. No, we're all saints, When we come into this understanding of who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross, we are all saints. So now all of a sudden, we extend our love to what is lovable and that's the saints that are around us. The third thing that happens here is in verse two. He says to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is that free, spontaneous, unmerited love of God to sinful men. The unmerited favor, grace to you, and peace from God. And peace is, is not an absence of turmoil. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about peace. You were once an enemy of God. You were once at odds with God. Now you are at peace with God because of what Jesus did. We have Jesus take us into... So please notice what's happening here. We have grace and peace. We are saints, we are slaves. We are brothers and sisters in Christ that have these things in common. So we are drawn to those things, we go to those things. And we go to the believer and to those in our family with love and care, compassion. Some translators translate lovely as winsome, amiable, approachable. I mean, think about that. When you are uh, around other believers, When you arrive, are they concerned about what you might stir up? Or are they glad that you're there because you're going to demonstrate grace and peace and love and you're going to have the same understanding that we are saints and we are slaves together in this, serving a wonderful God? The Apostle Paul helps drive home the reality that this idea of whatever is lovely is not about me. It's about the other person. It's about the the believer The brother, the sister, who needs the encouragement, who needs to be built up. In Romans chapter 15, verse 2, Paul says, Please your neighbor to build them up. And then in verse 3, he says, Christ did not please himself. When Christ went to the cross, it was not about Christ, it was about you and me. And one of the songs we sang today, you know, I was a slave to sin, no longer. Uh, Christ has set me free. We need to understand that this whole idea of whatever is lovely is all about the believer, the one to whom we should love. And if you look at verse 9 of Philippians uh, chapter 4, if you go back to verse 9, uh, Paul clearly gives us the payoff to all of this. He says in verse 9, he says, you know, whatever you have seen or heard in me, you're to do. But then he ends, verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, the payoff is peace. If you follow the admonition and commit yourself to the action, then you're going to have a heart that is clean and a peace that will surround you because you're doing what is right and what is best. The Apostle Paul is encouraging us to understand that he's addressing you and me He is giving this positive admonition to think, use your mind. And he is giving us a practical action, whatever is lovely. Pursue brotherly love. What a marvelous thing it is to know that we are able to change who we are because of what Christ tells us in his word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your love, the love that compelled your son to go to the cross and die for us. Thank you, Lord, for the lives of those that recorded so many things in Scripture for us to learn from. Father, we pray that our minds would be active in understanding what it is you have for us in your word so that we can be you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Have a wonderful week.